So we're in this series, Who is This Man? Who is he? I've enjoyed learning something new about Jesus every week. And I hope that you're able to see that Jesus just didn't influence our lives in the fact that he just simply came and lived on earth for 33 years, died on a cross, and rose from the dead and went to be with Jesus, and that's it. I hope you can see that he did so much more with his life and his ministry in this world that really influences every part of our lives. We've looked at how he influenced our learning and education. We've looked at how he influenced the very rights and the very nature that we now see women as. We see how Jesus has influenced the very dignity that a human person is entitled to, no matter who they are. Today, we're going to look at something a little bit different. We're going to look at how Jesus influenced even our government. Even the way that our government is shaped and founded came from the life of Jesus. Professor of Harvard, Ron Heifetz, says that leadership is the art of disappointing people at a rate they can stand. Leadership is the art of disappointing people at the rate they can stand. Well, obviously, when we look at Jesus' life, he obviously did not hear Ron Heifetz say this. Because Jesus was pretty good at um, making people a little uncomfortable. He was pretty good at breaking down every single thought and rule and regulation that you thought you were governed by. Jesus proclaimed that my kingdom is not of this world. That there's somewhere different, there's something different about this kingdom that I am going to bring into this world. His vision of a sphere of political realm that was beyond just simply politics. It was beyond being ruled by others. An understanding of what we now know as the limited government is part of the legacy of Jesus Christ. But it got him killed. You see, Jesus standing up to even the government was really what started the ball rolling and getting him killed. People often think of Palm Sunday as kind of a a fun, innocent little parade that that Jesus got to to ride on the donkey into the city of Jerusalem. and, and, And they laid down all of these palm branches on the ground. And we think of it as this fun, entertaining thing that happened. But really, years before, 
Jesus' birth, Israel's great temple had been destroyed, had been desecrated by foreign powers. But under the Maccabees, Israel won a measure of, of freedom, and they won back the rights to be the controlling kind of power over the temple. And as they were escorted to the temple and given permission to, to take control of the temple, they laid down palm branches as they went along and as they paraded to the temple, as they had won back the power to have. So palm branches became a symbol of Jewish nationalism. During two major wars against Rome, Israelite rebels illegally minted coins and put palm branches on them. The palm branch became a political symbol, like for us, like the elephant or the donkey is, or even Uncle Sam and his character. Palm branches had become the political symbol of the time. Waving a palm branch in front of Rome was like waving a red flag in front of a bull. It was just asking people to come on, bring it on. This is a challenge to your leadership. This was a declaration of war. You see, the triumphal entry wasn't just a fun parade, but to the, crowd, to the crowds, it was a military statement. They were making a statement to Rome. John indicates this by the shouts of the crowd. They begin by quoting Psalm 118, where they say, Hosanna, which means Lord save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All of that's fine. Perfectly fine to say that. They would not have been in trouble. They would not have been saying anything. However, they changed something. See, the next line in the Psalm 118 says, From the house of the Lord we bless you. But that's not what the crowd said. They said, blessed is the king of Israel. But who was at the front of the party? Who was leading the parade? It was Jesus. So they were making a statement. They were saying that blessed is the king of Israel, that this is our king. It was a challenge to Rome. Those were fighting words to Rome. But Jesus wouldn't fight. Jesus would not fight, which only confused them. And again, they find themselves asking, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? He's nobody. He's a carpenter. He's only got himself. How's he going to overthrow Rome? The phrase, the kingdom of God, was not viewed by the people as a place that you go after you die, much like it is today. To Israel, it was what would be the result of God crushing the Roman rule. You see, there had already been a kingdom, but it was Caesar's kingdom. The saying in Rome went something like this, Caesar is Lord. That Caesar is the power. Caesar is the Lord. The Roman coins 
had the image of Caesar in the inscription, excuse me, my Latin's a little rusty, Divi Phileus, which means the Son of God. Did you hear that? On the very coins that the Romans had, had an inscription of Caesar with the proclamation, Son of God. Do you see something begin to happen here? The Israelites longed for the kingdom of God to come. It wasn't a matter of if the kingdom of God would come for the Israelites. It was a matter of how would the kingdom of God come. Well, there are three viewpoints in that time of how the kingdom of God would come. First, there were the zealots. Their reaction was they revolted. They believed and dedicated themselves to bringing in the kingdom of God, which meant overthrowing Rome at all means necessary which meant violence. That the way that the kingdom of God was going to come, according to the zealots, was that they were going to take over by destroying and killing the Romans. Then there were the Essenes. For the Essenes, they chose a different path. They chose to withdraw. They believed that everything was so corrupt that they, deserted, they left the cities and they went out into the deserts and they started their own little communities because they believed that because they were pure, God would destroy everyone else. That if we just separate ourselves from the rest of the world and we stay in our own little tents, in our own little community, we'll be okay because God will take care of everyone else. And then there were the Sadducees. They assimilated. They did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in angels. They looked at the Romans and they said that if you can't beat them, join them. And so they joined with the Romans. Whatever the Romans said you do is what they did. Jesus found himself, as you can imagine, getting in quite a bit of trouble with all three of these groups. Can you imagine the zealots, how they would react as Jesus told the crowd in Matthew 5 to turn the other cheek? That when someone asks for your coat, give them your shirt also. That when a Roman soldier asks you to go one mile, go with them too. It's okay. There's no need for violence. The very thing the zealots stood for. See, the zealots were wrong. The kingdom of God will not come through violence. Jesus touched lepers. He spoke to prostitutes and Gentiles, and he ate with sinners. He ignored the purity regulations. You see, the Essenes were wrong as well. The kingdom of God will not be realized through withdrawing into a religious subculture. In other words, the church 
cannot live in the church. We can't exclude ourselves from the rest of the world and say, we're safe, we're in here, we're protected. Who cares about everyone else out there? At the same time, Jesus refused to assimilate. He refused to be like the Sadducees. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, 16 and 17, or 16, 17 through 21 there, we find that that Jesus is approached by a teacher of the law. And some of the Pharisees come and they kind of, they want to test him. They want to see what kind of answers he's going to give them, which actually they're trying to trick him, which we'll see in a minute. Verse 16, they said, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They're pleading. To his, they're trying to get in on the good side right now. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then. What is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial imperial tax to Caesar or not? Is it right to pay the imperial tax? To understand the question that Jesus was being imposed, we need to first understand a little bit of history. A man named Judas of Galilee led a revolt that had... That was an issue about the time Jesus was a little boy. He and about 2,000 other followers of his were crucified by Rome. And the crosses were left up as a subtle reminding, a subtle reminding to pay your taxes. You see, they revolted. They believed that, no, we don't need to pay to Caesar what is his. Because we're not of this kingdom. We're different. Or we're going to destroy Rome by not paying the tax that they require of us. And so about 2,000 men are crucified along the roads leading into Jerusalem. And their crosses are left up and their bodies are left on these crosses as a symbol to everyone else. Pay your taxes or you can join them. If Jesus answered the question with yes, people would hate him for giving in to Rome. If he said no, Rome could always find another cross. Verse 18. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? See, the details matter. Jesus wanted to know, what, what is, Whose coin is this? He did not agree with Caesar's right. To be worshipped. 
It wasn't a Sadducee. You see, because it was only the Sadducees who would actually carry Roman coins with them. Because the Jewish Israelites believed that to even carry a coin with Caesar's inscription on it was to carry an idol of a God that was not the true God. So Jesus has to ask, bring me a coin. I don't happen to have one on me. Bring me one. Whose is it? Who does this coin say it belongs to? So Jesus answers them. Verse 21. They respond to him, Caesar. It's Caesar's. He said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. You see that statement? Forever changed the world. Because now there was a distinction between two things. There was now a distinction between government, a ruling power, and God. You see, prior to this, there was no difference between, there was no saying of church and state. Because it, the state ran the church. The government ran the church. At this point, Jesus is saying that, I'm sorry, government, I'm sorry, Caesar, but you have no power over the body of Christ. You have no allegiance. You have no power over the kingdom of God. The implication that Jesus was saying was that there are things that do not belong to Caesar. The right to dictate worship did not belong to Caesar. The claim to ultimate allegiance did not belong to the ruler. The valuation of human worth did not belong to Caesar. The title of Lord and the Son of God did not belong to Caesar. You see, to Rome, the existence of gods immensely enhanced Caesar's authority. They believed that because there were gods, Caesar had authority because they actually believed that the gods, he was the descendant of the gods, that Caesar was the highest power in the world, hence the Son of God. But to Jesus, the existence of God not God's, God limited Caesar's authority. See, Jesus would not worship Caesar. He refused to. But he would not hate him or slander his name either. You see, God had told Abraham that Abraham would be a blessing to all the nations, to all the people that they would be blessed because of Abraham. You see, Jesus didn't want to just bless Israel. Jesus wanted to bless Rome. Jesus wanted to bless Caesar. But Caesar needed to realize that all things weren't his. 
under the reign of Marcus Aurelius and Nero, many Christians were persecuted. It was under these two men that the church began to grow. But yet people were killed daily for following Jesus. During their reign, churches met in in secluded places. They would hide themselves. And they continued to grow because they could not worship out in public. It was illegal for them to worship, worship openly because by them worshiping Jesus and God, they were, in essence, betraying and pledging no allegiance to Caesar. And so they were killed. Centuries later, Constantine was the emperor. And in a vision one night of a cross, he gave himself to Christ and he became a Christian. And he did the worst possible thing that has come in the history of the church. He legalized it. He said, it's okay. It's okay. For Christians, it's okay. You don't have to hide anymore. You can come out in the open. You can be free to share your faith with anyone you want because it's no longer illegal. You will not be killed. And so even Constantine builds one of the very first churches that was commissioned by a Roman. The church actually still stands today. But you know what happened? The church stopped growing. People's faith started waning. God became a secondary. You see, clergy that had been recruited on the basis of devotion were now flooded with wealth and status. Bishops began living lifestyles of the rich and famous. Becoming a Christian was becoming a vocational and a financial asset. So it was a good thing. If you wanted to be in the in crowd, you became a Christian. You went to church because that was the thing you did. Now the Christians had power. They outlawed and persecuted not only pagans, but also fellow Christians who they believed were heretics. You see, as soon as the church, as soon as Christians got power, they did the very same thing that they were against. And the things that were done to them, they turned around and did to even their own people. I want to read you a story. It might change a little bit of perspective for you. When it comes to thinking about your faith, in your freedom as a Christian to worship freely. John Ortberg writes this story. He says, A man I know was one of a few doctors who specialized in his area in Ethiopia at a time when Christians were often persecuted there. Because of his medical specialty, he was well-known and carefully watched and sometimes privileged. Because of his faith, he was in prison several times. 
The small church that he was a part of was vibrant. They shared everything. When they gathered for worship with shades drawn, their joy was intense. Their knowledge of the details of each other's lives was far deeper than I have seen in any churches I know of in the United States. They lived in constant danger of arrest. There, were no, there was no such thing in their world as a nominal Christian. That would, be, that would be like becoming a nominal chainsaw juggler, he says. When I would visit a group of Christians in someone's home, they would say, teach us. And, and they would pull out their paper and pen to write down whatever might be of help. John Ortberg. I don't know if you've heard of John Ortberg, written a lot of books, very well known around the world as a speaker and author. His church in California has like multiple thousands that go to it, and he makes this statement. He says that they cried, teach us, and pull out their paper and pen to write down whatever might help him. And he says, this rarely happens to me in the United States. They were hungry to know more about this man, Jesus Christ. Knowing that the knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ would eventually one day get them killed. John goes on to say, I talked with this doctor about the government. I said that he must pray often for the persecution and suffering to stop. He asked me with no apparent irony. Why should I pray to be relieved of suffering? John says, I could not think of a good answer. You see, because it was in the very suffering that people cared about each other. We're free. We get to wake up in the morning and make whatever decisions we want to do we have the freedom to care about the people around us. There are people even in today's world that don't have that freedom. But yet they know more about the people in their church than you or I can even begin to know about each other. And you see, if you want to know the true biblical nature of the church that Jesus Christ came for. Go to China. Go to Ethiopia. And there you will find people more in love and serious about their faith in Jesus Christ that makes us look like a bunch of idiots. But they fear for their lives, but they don't care because they know that their life is only found and made known in one person, and that's Jesus Christ. How deep is your faith? I had heard a joke a long time ago. I didn't quite understand it until this week. There's these three gunmen that come into a church service one morning. 
And they start raising the guns and, and they start yelling, all of you Christians, get out. All of the people who believe in Jesus and you want to worship God, get out. But everyone stayed. He said, obviously this isn't working. If you believe in Jesus Christ, stay. Let's see how much strong your faith is. If you don't believe in God and you don't want to die today, get out. So people began getting up and running and leaving the church. And after all the people had left that feared for their lives more than they cared about their life in Christ, the guys laid down their guns and said, now that the real Christians are here, let's worship God. Now I realize would you and I be Christians if we were in China? Would you and I be Christians? Would we say that we follow Christ if we lived in a place where it was illegal? If we knew that military people would come up to us and ask us, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you worship God? Would we say yes knowing that we would be killed or put in prison for the rest of our lives? I challenge you. A follower of Christ will. But let me also say this. That if you say that you follow Christ, and you're also saying in the back of your mind, no way. No way would I do that. You're in the right place. I challenge you to find who Jesus is. Don't leave because, oh, I'm not welcome here. No, you're welcome here. But find who Jesus is. Search more. Look deeper into who he is. Because it's when you fall in love with him, it's when you know who this man is that you realize nothing else matters. Except knowing Jesus Christ and living for him. For many years now, there's been a danger. There's always been this thing in the back of people's minds, Christians' minds in the United States. Is Christianity going to be made illegal? And I say to you, let them. Let them. Because then we'll find out who the real Christians are. So today we come to a table and we celebrate this man named Jesus. We come to a table freely invited. There are no requirements. There are no presuppositions. You don't have to have everything in order. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have everything lined up. 
one requirement. You have to at least want to know who this man is. That's it. No. Because it's in searching that you find him. It's in asking him to come into your life that you find him. Because he's not lost. You know what I love about the picture of Jesus sitting around the table with his disciples? Is there wasn't one person around that table besides Jesus that was perfect. They all had messed up. They all had made life decisions that they regretted. They were still going to mess up. Remember, Judas, the very man that would betray Jesus, was sitting there as one of his loved disciples. That is why I say, the only requirement is to want to know him. Because before you can know him, you have to want to know him, right? So Jesus sat around a table and he ate with his brothers in his love.